0: Let's pray. Father, that is our confession. We need You. We look around for five seconds at the world around us. And we see and we hear and we, we taste and we feel the, the weight of brokenness. We know it in our own hearts and in the corruption sometimes of our own thinking and so we cry out to you together that we need you. And we ask you, Spirit of God, do what we cannot do in transforming these hearts, in opening the blindness of our eyes and speaking to us through your word, which is food for us. Bring life where there is death. Bring sight where there is blindness. Bring healing when there's brokenness. We need you. We confess we need you. Encourage us as we spend time in your word this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. You guys can be seated. And I don't know if you're standing at home, but you can sit down too, I suppose. Uh, There's a little, as an aside, Nate. Sound people in the back. There's a little bit of a hum. I don't know if you can hear that, but I can hear it up here. There's a nice uh, echo. Anyway, there you go, working out technical difficulties uh, here in a quasi-empty room. Um, good morning. I'm really happy to be here today. I'm, I'm happy to see many of your faces. For the last number of weeks, um, we've had the pulpit off to one side, and literally standing in front of it has been a phone like this on a on a screen or on a tripod and I've been talking to that thing or Devin has or Charlie and so it's actually nice to be able to talk to people Um, really happy to be here today Uh, we're just one week from from a more full re-engagement here on Sunday morning and and I'm very much looking forward to us being together again in uh, even if we're a little spread out or there's slightly fewer of us Um, uh, this, this morning, thank you for being here, those of you who are here, to help us get a feel for uh, what this is like, not only how our space functions, but as we kind of put into practice some of the, some of the procedures um, that we have been talking about. Uh, thank you for helping us guinea pig those this morning. Um, and again, uh, next week, 9 and 11, we'll, uh, we'll try to safely fill up the chairs that we have spread out in the room. Today, we're opening our summer preaching series. Um, starting a journey through the psalms. And, and one of the things we're thinking is that we'll take time in the summer, uh, hopefully in the summers going forward, uh, to just walk our way through the psalms uh, during these weeks and in the years to come. A few reasons for the psalms this summer. Uh, the psalms are a rich collection of praise and worship, of prayer and lament The Psalms give us some significant anchoring truths about who God is, tells us a lot about His character, as well as His promises to His people. Uh, in, In seasons of both joy and in sorrow, the Psalms give words to our thoughts and to our emotions, so it's not just a collection of prayers and songs, but the Psalms actually help us pray and help us sing when we often don't have words ourselves. And I believe the Psalms speak to the reality of our hearts and our condition, not with cynicism, which some of us, like myself, are prone to, and not with blind faith, but sure and steady and proven hope, hope in God who sits enthroned as the sovereign King of the universe, and hope in a God who is near to the brokenhearted, near to the weary. And so it helps, the Psalms help us turn our eyes to Jesus because He has come to rescue and redeem and restore all the things that sin has destroyed. One last bit for this particular uh, summer. We'll have a mix of voices preaching through these psalms of the course of the summer. Pastor Devin and I will tackle the first four, and then Charlie will be preaching, uh, Lord willing, from Psalm chapter 5. And then you'll hear from six other faithful men, some of which you've heard before, and others who will be new to you. Each one striving to both grow in their ability to study and interpret and preach God's Word, and to serve you, to serve the body through that preaching and teaching. So that's kind of the plan for the next 12 weeks or so. I'm really looking forward to our time together. So grab your Bibles and turn to Psalm 1. We'll start right at the beginning in Psalm 1. And as you're turning there, a little background on the Psalms as a whole and particularly how Psalm 1 fits into that. There are 150 individual Psalms. They're not organized chronologically necessarily, um, and, and, but there are a variety of authors. Uh, David, King David is, is uh attributed to many of the Psalms. Other names you'll see as we go through, uh, names like the sons of Korah um, and others. Many are unattributed. But they're organized in a collection across five books. Maybe you'll notice that in, in your Bible. As you turn to Psalm 1, it'll say book 1 at the top. Um, within, so there's five kind of collections or books within the book. And these five books kind of mark out this big arc of God's redemptive work. Creation begins with God and the pinnacle of His creation. God makes male and female in His image and likeness and calls it very good. But sin enters and fractures all creation, And from that point forward in the universe there's conflict and confrontation and there will be confrontation and conflict until Christ comes again at the consummation of all things and the kingdom of God which has been established in Christ is fully completed. And book 1 where we're starting today in Psalm 1 outlines the beginning of that work of redemption and the conflict and the confrontation that exists in the world. And so we'll only get through Psalm 12 this summer, but this section of of the psalm, book one, stretches all the way through chapter 41. And although Psalm 1 and 2, which Devin will preach on next week, although Psalm 1 and 2 are part of this first book, Psalm 1 and 2 also serve as a bit of of an introduction to the entire book. They stand alone a little uniquely, kind of a preamble to the rest of the psalms. Psalm 1 highlights the beauty of the word of the Lord, and Psalm 2, which Devin will preach next week, uh, speaks of the Lord's anointed who will rule and reign. And so these two psalms, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, kind of set the stage for all of the rest of the psalms and all of redemptive history. God's word being given to his people and God's Messiah come to redeem his people. God's Word and God's Messiah, and you'll see this theme over and over and over again in the Psalms, and so Psalm one we'll look at God's Word given to His people, and then next week, Psalm 2, the reign of the Lord's anointed. So, with all that background, we've often talked about when we've done a sermon series that we should have one week that's just for introduction. We don't have time for that. So, you get, that's, the, that's all the introduction I'm going to give you. And now let's read Psalm 1 together. So grab your Bibles if you, if, you, if you haven't already. Psalm 1, we'll read the whole thing. It's only six verses. It'll be on the screen as well. This is the word of the Lord for us today. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor seats, sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that He does, He prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is the word of the Lord. By the Holy Spirit, may it accomplish The purpose for which it was given. Amen. Now, at first reading, it's clear, I think it's clear, that we see contrasting ideas and contrasting language here, right? We see a lot of this and that the righteous and the wicked, the flourishing tree and the wasted chaff, the one who is blessed and the one who in the end perishes. This psalm is set up as a series of contrasting statements. There is prospering and there is perishing. And I think that's kind of the big idea the psalmist wants the reader to understand and ask the question, where do we find ourselves on that continuum, on that scale? So we'll look at that contrast and also how the psalm speaks to us as it relates to the righteous and the wicked. So we have prospering and perishing. We have righteousness and wickedness. And I'm going to argue that even though the psalmist did not know the name of Jesus. We believe all Scripture is bearing witness to Him, to Jesus. And so we're also going to look at what this psalm teaches us about Jesus, about His righteousness, and what that means for all of us who belong to Him. So let's look at these categories from Psalm 1. The first, the first kind of contrasting category is the prospering and the perishing. That's our first Point today. Verses 1 through 4 lay out this contrast between prospering and perishing. Verses 1 through 3 give a picture of the person who is blessed by God. Literally translated, happy is the man. Happy is the one who, who doesn't do these things, but instead does these. And then verse 3 starts this beautiful word picture of a strong and healthy and fruitful tree. And this healthy tree is the picture the psalmist wants to give us of what true prosperity, truly prospering, really looks like. Spring fed, flourishing, strong, bearing fruit. It's a vivid picture. And then in verse 4, gives us this short, cold, and very direct contrast, right? Multiple words to describe the flourishing of the tree, and then to describe the other side is. One verse, chaff. The wicked are not blessed, they're not flourishing, they're like chaff, which is the the husk of the grain. Have you ever harvested or purchased sweet corn in the summer, right? Anyone else looking forward to a big old pile of sweet corn, right? What do you do? Or maybe what you did as a kid, right? Mom would hand you the the paper bag full of sweet corn and you'd have to take it out into the backyard or out to the the driveway and pull all the husk off, right? Being wary of like caterpillars or other things that might be hiding out in there. Sorry, I just creeped half of you out. You're like, I'm never touching corn again. Right? What do you do with the husk? You throw it away or you you burn it or, right? It's, It's the waste. It grows up with the corn and then is torn off and discarded. That's the idea here of chaff, the husk, the waste. The grain, the corn or the wheat or the whatever is is kept and the the outside, the shell, is discarded. So what a vivid picture. In some ways, you're almost hoping for more detail. Like we, we have a lot of detail about a healthy tree, the one who is blessed. And then on the other side, All you get is the husk that's thrown away or taken by the wind. But at the same time, I think the contrast is being stark is very powerful. Healthy, flourishing, green tree full of fruit on one side and the other side, just nothing. Dead and gone. And the psalmist says this is the picture of a truly blessed, a truly happy individual. This is what it means to prosper. The righteous prosper, he says, and the wicked perish. Now we'll get into the tree here in a second. And then the contrast of the chaff blown away by the wind. Verse 5 tells us, therefore, so in light of the picture the psalmist has painted of flourishing and health and life versus the chaff which is wasted and blown away, verse 5 says the wicked ultimately will not stand in judgment. When judgment comes, the great and terrible day of the Lord, all will be in awe. Scripture says every knee, on that day, every knee will bow. And every tongue will make a confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. But the picture here is that the righteous... Will actually be pulled from their knees, lifted from their knees to stand beside the risen Christ as beloved sons and daughters, as co heirs to inherit all the blessings and all the rights of the kingdom of God. But the wicked will remain humbled by the glory and holiness of the Lord awaiting God's justice. The wicked will not stand in the judgment, they will not join in the congregation of the righteous. So, blessed is the man, to go back to verse 1, that does not stand in the counsel, does not take advice from the wicked, and, because in the end, they, wicked will not take counsel with the righteous. And then verse 6, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is the warning of the passage. There's a, a sobering promise here. And, and there isn't much detail more needed, I don't think. Two clear, contrasting realities. One aimed towards blessing and flourishing and one aimed at destruction, prospering and perishing. So the question I ask as I read this is, so what? Like, what do I do with this information? What does this mean for me? What does this mean for us? And I begin to ask myself a couple of questions that I'll ask you to ask. Where do I find myself on this continuum between prospering and perishing? Right? Right? How often do I look at my life around me in view of God's righteousness, in view of what's going on, and how much do my circumstances dictate, do I feel blessed? Because if we're honest, we, we don't want to be on the perishing end. We want to be fruitful, not husks, right? So how do we get and aim ourselves into the prospering, flourishing camp? What moves me into the righteous camp and not just to remain in the wickedness camp? I, I want to be known and cared for and blessed by God. And even once we get there, or once we feel we are there, or once we know we are there, what changes, what's different in our lives because of it? So where do I find myself between prospering and perishing, and, and how do I How do I know? And this is where I think we go back and work through the psalm again. Look at what the psalmist says in verses one and two. We're going to look at the details here. He says, "Happy, the happy man or the happy woman walks not; doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. They don't count counsel from the world and from the as, Excuse me, the unrighteous as valuable information." Clearly, those who are far from God, who do not fear God, are in no position to dispense the wisdom of God. It's not that there's nothing to learn, but when seeking counsel and wisdom and understanding about who God is, about who you are, your own identity, when you're seeking clarity on direction for your life, what does God have for me? Proverbs 1 says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. In fact, Proverbs 1 and 2, if you'd like to read those this week, are remarkably direct in warning against neglecting the wisdom and the Word of God. The happy man, the happy woman, doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. There's a caution there. The psalmist continues. Blessed is the man, happy is the man or the woman who stands not in the way of sinners. When we think of standing in the way, we think of blocking someone's path. At least that's how I read that text on its face. Standing in someone's way is, hey, you're in my way. (laughs) But in this case, the phrasing and the meaning is actually like joining in with that crowd or that group of people. It refers to following in their path. As a kid, when I would do something dumb, which happened a lot, my parents would call me on it, and my response would sometimes be, well, other people were doing that, and from the mouth of my mom or my dad would be, well, if everyone jumped off a cliff, would you do that too? Anyone else get that line of advice from their parents? Right? To which my answer was usually, well, no. But that's the idea here of standing in the way of sinners, following the same path as the foolish person, like animals in a stampede, just following each other square off a cliff. Blessed, happy is the one who does not follow in the way of sinners, the psalmist says. And the third one, blessed is the man, blessed is the woman, happy is the one who does not sit in the seat of scoffers. Now, scoffer isn't a word that you probably use very often in your daily vocabulary. You you probably scoff more than you actually use the word scoff. It happens when I'm driving and I'm trying to merge under the freeway and the person in front of me on the entrance, it's called an entrance ramp for a reason... You have to like speed up, not stop at the end, and I scoff. Ugh, who taught that guy how to drive? And then you go by and you realize it's like an 85-year-old, gray-haired old woman, and you feel bad, a little bit at least, for like, I just scoffed at her, but I didn't use the word scoff, I was just a jerk, right? Happy is the man who doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers. These are the mockers. They chatter, they click their teeth, they ridicule, they nitpick. They're boastful and self-righteous. They feel like they're the experts in everything and smarter than everyone else. On top of that, the scoffer can't take correction. The scoffer knows better. The scoffer despises true wisdom if he hasn't come up with it himself. Proverbs has some strong words for the scoffer. And so happy is the one who also doesn't sit in their seat to judge everyone else from on high. So the psalmist gives these correctives. How do I know where my heart's at? Well, look at Psalm chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. There's a self-corrective or filter aspect happening there. Happy is the one who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, doesn't stand in the way of sinners, and doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers. But, rather, the psalmist says, happy is the man carrying through that blessed is from the beginning. Happy is the man, happy is the woman who has their delight in the law of the Lord. Happy is the man or the woman who meditates on God's Word day and night. The Word of the Lord. God's Word is precious. Precious to the one. He, he takes pleasure in it. She treasures it. He pursues it. She meditates on it all the time. Day and night doesn't mean never does anything else, but it's, a, it's rich language that's just speaking of always, consistently. The day is full of a treasuring and a dependence on the Word of God. Thinking about it. Chewing on it. Turning it over in his head and heart, remembering and fighting to remember the truth of God's promises all the time in every situation, often throughout the day. And so this can serve as a bit of a barometer for us. Do you wonder where you are sometimes on the scale? The psalmist gives us this picture. On the one hand, you have foolish, sinful, Arrogant. And on the other side, on the other hand, you have humble, hungry, scripture treasuring. And at this point, you might be feeling a little unsettled. It's one thing for us to acknowledge that none of us is perfect, that none of us, even with our best intentions, completely embodies the blessed person of verses one and two. We sometimes find ourselves uh, walking in the way of sinners and taking counsel. From the wicked and and scoffing, sitting down in the seat of judgment over others. I don't know about you. I find myself there sometimes. Maybe you do as well. I don't always meditate on God's word first. Sometimes I use my own strength or my own wisdom to solve a problem and then go, wait a minute, I think God has something to say about this. Maybe I should pause. Right? None of us, even with our best intentions, embodies this perfectly. We find ourselves in the wrong place, at the wrong time, with the wrong people, sitting in the wrong seat. And if we take God at His word, the psalmist says in Psalm 14, the fool says in his heart, there's no God. Look, they are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is no one who does good, Psalm 14. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, any who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. And Paul's quoting Psalm 14 in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, when he says, as it is written, no one is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. So we can't put the scale of morality out in front of us and weigh Our delight in our meditation against our walking, standing, and sitting with the wicked, with sinners, and with scoffers, and hope that the good outweighs the bad. We can't put it out in front of us as much as it is a barometer and a test for us to check our hearts. We can't be like, well, I was more uh, thoughtful and meditative and delighting in God's word today than I was scoffing and ridiculing, therefore, I'm doing good. My righteousness quotient is intact. Because we will fail that test every time on our own strength. Every time. So, that leads me to my second point today. What hope we have in the contrast between righteousness and wickedness. That's the other big contrast I want to look at. Because the righteousness that we need is not one we can achieve on our own. The righteousness that we need is not one we can achieve on our own. The Apostle Paul says as much in Galatians chapter 3 and other places. He says, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. I cannot pile up my delight in God's word and my, my, the hours I spent meditating on it as proof. See, God? I've done more righteous things today than unrighteous, therefore accept me. Not faith in self or faith in faith. I think what we have here in Psalm chapter 1 is a little bit of a telescope that looks down through the lens of history to Jesus. That John, the apostle, in 1 John chapter 2, calls Jesus Christ the righteous. Righteous. One of my favorite titles that Jesus carries in the New Testament. When John says, Jesus Christ the righteous, he's the righteous one. He's the perfect one. The righteousness that we need to stand in the congregation, to stand in the judgment, to be known by the Lord, verse six, the righteousness that we need is a blessing that we receive in Christ Jesus. This is where our application of the Psalms takes a decided turn. When this idea that it isn't our own righteousness, but Christ's righteousness, His holiness, His perfection is imputed to us, meaning it is assigned and given to us, it is deposited in our account, then I believe our minds and lives will begin to conform to the will of God and will start to embody the picture of the blessed man and the flourishing tree. Here's what I mean by that. Look at verse 3. Look at the tree. The tree is planted. Now don't overlook that very simple word. The tree is planted. The tree didn't plant itself. The one who is blessed has confidence that the Lord cares. He has planted me where I am with purpose and with intentionality. The Lord isn't haphazard with His trees. He's not careless with His children. By faith in Christ Jesus, believing His righteousness is now mine by faith, I have confidence that the Lord has planted me. He's established me and tends to me and will complete the work He has begun in me. And it's not just me, it's you. It's a grove of trees. It is a garden of beautiful, flourishing, fruitful trees that He calls His. We are each, with faith in Christ, a planted tree in the garden of God. And notice the intentionality of where he plants this tree. This tree's leaves don't wilt. Not because it's a pine tree. It's coniferous, by the way. Not because it's coniferous. I know my arborology. That's not a word. Right? Is that a word? I don't know. Coniferous, right? Not because it's an evergreen. It's leafy and green because it is constantly tended and fed. It doesn't have a winter The leaves don't wilt because it is constantly being kept and tended. It bears its fruit in season. It's never bare because it is planted near the stream. Notice that, where its roots can go deep, it can get all the water that it needs. The prophet Ezekiel was given a vision of the new temple. While the people of God were in exile, God spoke to Ezekiel, and starting in chapter 40, God lays out in great detail the picture of the temple, right down to the square footage and the accessories and the furniture. And out of the back of the temple, there's a a doorway, and it leads to a garden with a river that flows from the sanctuary. So Ezekiel's not just getting a picture of an earthly temple. I think he's seeing something beyond because a river flows from the sanctuary of the temple. From Ezekiel chapter 47, verse 12. Listen to this. And on the banks of this river, on both sides of the river, there will, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail. But they will bear fresh fruit every month, because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. This is not a vision just of a rebuilt temple. I think a foreshadowing of the new Jerusalem and the kingdom to come. And the Apostle John was given a prophetic vision that we have in the book of Revelation. The final book we have in the Bible. Listen to how John describes what he saw in the city of God come down at the end of all time. Revelation chapter 22. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. That is a beautiful picture. And notice, notice the parallels, the trees, planted by the streams, fed from the sanctuary, fed from the throne room of God, giving fruit without fail, leaves without wilt or withering with the purpose of bringing healing. Look again at Psalm 1, verse 6. Psalmist says, The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. He knows them. He knows them. There's echoes of John 10 in this language. When Jesus is speaking, He says, I am the Good Shepherd. My sheep know Me. I know My sheep and My sheep know Me. They know My voice. He knows us. He knows you. Do you know that? That God, who is great and majestic and sovereign over all creation, knows not only every hair on your head, but every care and every hurt and every joy and every sorrow. This is an intimacy that He shares with His own, but not with those who do not know Him. And so, yes, there is a warning here, but, but if you let me, can I challenge you to fight despair, to fight sin with delight? I think that when we can grasp the reality of what it means that, that Jesus takes our sin, but Jesus takes our garbage, He takes all our unrighteousness and it is nailed to the cross. And when our minds and our hearts are freshly captivated by this grace given to us, that He takes all of it, I think then our lives actually begin to conform to God's will for us. It's when we recognize this grace that's been given to us that our hearts begin to desire His Word more than other things. His Word fills our mind and we meditate and think on it and apply it more. Not out of sheer willpower, but we are are wooed, we are drawn, we are called by the grace of God that is poured out so lavishly on us in Christ Jesus. And His Word then becomes a blessing instead of a burden. It's refreshing for our souls, not a list of things and deeds we can never fully keep. And I believe, brothers and sisters, we will see the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, that this prosperity that's spoken of here, what it actually looks like. Not that life won't be hard, not that there won't be trials and temptations and seasons of drought and facing death, but that we will, by the Spirit of God, bear the fruit of the Spirit. Not necessarily full bank accounts and easy living. We will bear this kind of fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. That when we bear those things in our lives, not manufacture them, when we bear them by a work of the Spirit, then we begin to show off in our lives the work of God. That's what I think prosperity looks like in this context. And that there is for the people of God a steady and sure stream of God's goodness. God's promise for us that will sustain us and will grow us in every season. This is your inheritance in Christ Jesus. This is the promise for you in Christ Jesus. A righteousness that is not your own and a promise of the sure working of the Spirit to bring about this kind of fruit in your lives. And his revelation 22 shows us that the trees that the Lord has established, this grove, if you will, that he's planted, it will bear fruit. The gates of hell will not stand against God's purposes through his church. As failing and faltering as it may seem, God will accomplish his purposes. The leaves of God's gr- trees in his grove will never wither. And, as Revelation 22 says, they the healing of the nations. We don't have time to get into that and how that promise attaches to the promise to Abraham, the covenant with Abraham in the beginning, that God would bless him to be a blessing to the nations. This is a direct connection to that. We don't have time to get into that. But the fruit and the healing and the life that comes out of this grove is a direct expression of God's love to call the nations to healing, to repentance, and to life. In Christ Jesus, you are established, you are planted. And through Christ Jesus, there is a promise to flourish in fruitfulness in you. You are known by God, and He delights in you. And you are being nourished by God's Word as your heart and mind both delight in its riches, and as the Spirit increases your understanding as you meditate on it. This is what it means to be blessed not power or or platform, not possessions or comfort or safety, but planted, delighting and drinking deeply from the streams of God's Word, humbled by the grace of God to us in Christ Jesus and hidden and secure in His righteousness, His perfection that is now ours. Would you pray with me? Father, we, we thank You for your mercy on display in Christ Jesus. It is easy as we look around at the world around us to just be overwhelmed. How often we cry out in our own lives, in the world around us, how long, O Lord? The burdens often seem too great. Our own weakness seems too great. And yet there's a surety of your promise here. Father, we confess that there is only one perfectly righteous. One who never walked in the counsel of the wicked, never stood in the way of sinners, never sat in the seat of scoffers, whose delight was always in the law of the Lord and whose word was meditated on day and night, and that is Jesus his perfect righteousness. Thank you that in your divine wisdom you have given us Christ's righteousness as he has taken on our sin, that he condemned it on the cross, and that he rose again from the grave, that we who were slaves to sin are no longer slaves to sin. In fact, Death itself is turned upside down. Spirit of God, help us in this time as we reflect to see with fresh eyes the areas of brokenness and sin in our own lives that need confession and need healing. And would you expand our faith to be able to see where you're at work, bringing about fruit that we would believe all the more fully that you who began a good work in us will be faithful to bring it to completion. Work in our hearts. Help us to see the beauty of the promise that you have planted your people. You sustain us. And grow us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.